Blog Talk Radio. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I'm with co-host Patricia Glover-Howard. Hi, Patricia. Hello, Bernice. So excited about the show tonight. Oh, Patricia, I am too. Now, everyone, Patricia will monitor the chat room, and she'll summarize some of the comments that you get, but she's also going to ask some questions tonight of the guests. Well, I want to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and Take action. If you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, please sign in through your Facebook account or Blog Talk Radio. Well, my guest tonight is Karen Batchelor, and she will discuss her extreme ancestry. Well, Karen Batchelor will share the many unexpected twists and turns on her 40 year family history journey and how what she has learned from the past has changed her life. In 1977, she became the first known black woman to be admitted for membership in the Daughters of the American Revolution. And since then, she has discovered ancestors all over the place. With a background in the practice of law and over 40 years of experience as a genealogist, Karen founded Story Mountain LLC, where she helps others with family research. She also specializes in colonial New England and the Revolutionary War era, preparation of lineage applications, and analysis of historic legal documents. In addition to her client work, Karen serves as a national vice chair of lineage research for DAR and is a certified instructor of guided autobiographies. So let me give a warm welcome to Karen Batchelor to research at the National Archives and Beyond. Welcome, Karen. Hi, Bernice. Hi, Patricia. It's so great to be on the show. Thank you. Well, it's just great to have you on the show, and you have one very interesting extreme ancestry to share with us. So, (laughs) Karen, let's begin with your beginning. What motivated you to research your family history? Well, I'll tell you, Bernice, it started... it, it wasn't that I saw this on TV or anything. It actually started because I became a mom. So this was back in 1975. I had my son. My, um, and you know what I realized as I was thinking now I have someone to pass our family stories on to is that there was a lot that I didn't know about our family. So in January of 1976, which was the bicentennial year as well, and I'm a big New Year's resolution kind of girl, so I made this New Year's resolution that I was going to start learning more about my family. Now, this was before the Internet. 
obviously before sites like Ancestry and Family Search and Poultry. And I didn't know I didn't know anybody who did genealogy and I went to the library. I checked out a book, um, The Researcher's Guide to American Genealogy, which is now in its, I don't know, third or fourth edition. And I read the book cover to cover twice. I probably kept it out way past the date that I was supposed to turn it back in. So I did incur some fines, but it was worth it. And that's how I started is, you know, I read um, read the book and I got a notebook and, you know, a binder. And I, I started by calling my oldest relative because that's what I had read. And my oldest relative at the time was my great aunt Clara who was from Cleveland, so my grandmother's sister, and my grandmother was already deceased, my maternal grandmother. And so Aunt Clara, I think up till then, had seen herself as the uh, self-appointed family historian. You know, all of our families have one, and oftentimes it's oh, us. Oh, yes. Uh, you know. So um, Aunt Clara was thrilled. I mean, she was thrilled that anybody even wanted to know about that side of the family. So she told me what she knew. She actually wrote me a little letter, which I still have all these years later. And that got me started. And I will tell you within 10 months, and I'm just, you know, going to the library near us. I'm lucky that I live in Detroit. And we have um, uh, at the main library here, uh, the Burton Historical Collection, which is a really great local genealogy collection, but it has um, some national um, information, too, on, you know, different states. So I started my research there. I found a woman at a um, a historical society in Pennsylvania, and she helped me out. And so 10 months later, I stumble, literally stumble onto this guy named William Hood, an ancestor. And through my research, I discovered that he had fought in um, the Revolutionary War in Pennsylvania. And I can tell you, I mean, I knew about DAR because my mother had been in D.C. when Marian Anderson had to sing on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. And um, I, you know, I knew about, you know, that that was just a controversy but I never thought I'd be looking, you know, at the opportunity to, you know, become a member. So that's that's how I got started. A that's how resolution. you got started. Now it's really interesting to hear you say you stumbled on William Hood. Now who is William Hood? So William Hood is my fourth great grandfather and he was um he was a young man, very young man during the Revolutionary War. He lived in an area of Pennsylvania that was called Northumberland County back then, but it was literally the largest county. It was outside of Lancaster. And from what I've found in more recent years, he actually probably came from a Quaker family. Um, so that's a, a research project that I'm working on this summer is finding out more about the hood line. Um, And he um, fought at a battle uh, at a small little fort called Fort Freeland. That area of Pennsylvania was literally the frontier. I mean, on the other side of there, it was all land that was owned by by Native Americans, by the Indians. And so this was hotly contested area. And this little battle, as small as it was, was actually a pivotal battle. And so he survived and went on to get married. And the woman he married, Rebecca, um, it turns out that I find them then – in 1810 or so, they're living in Erie County, Pennsylvania, so way up in the upper 
um, northwest corner of Pennsylvania on land that was donation land that was given by the state of Pennsylvania or the, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania to Rebecca's father. So I have then there's another ancestor who fought in the American Revolution and they lived on this land and it was payment for her father's services in the American Revolution. And so that land, I have actually been there. I've driven there. I've been there. It's the town where my great-grandmother came from. And it's a little town called Waterford, Pennsylvania. And it's, uh, I think there's one stoplight. But um, it was amazing to go there and stay. I mean, can you imagine that you're standing where these people, many generations you know, before you stood and looked out over this valley and I found gravestones. And yeah, I'm one of those people who tromps through the graveyards and everything. So, um, Well, it just sounds yeah. so exciting. Now, there is a question. They want to know what, what was the year of the battle and also was William Hood a free person of color? Okay, the, the answer to the first question is that um, the battle, I believe, was in 1781 or 2. Um, I'd have to look it up to see exactly, but around that time. So it was later in the American Revolution. And um, my family line that goes back to the American Revolution and to my colonial ancestors is not an African line. So all my ancestors on that line are white, were white. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. And so so in order for you to get to your fourth great-grandfather, someone or your you said your elderly aunt provided you with information about your family history was this part of what she provided you um not exactly so here's what aunt clara provided me um so aunt clara and my my grandmother hazel who you know was deceased by the time i was born they were the daughters of prince albert weaver and jenny daisy hood and Prince Albert was mixed race, so part black, um, maybe something else. Um, he, you know, the pictures I've seen, he looks like he's mixed, but he was he was black. And my great grandmother Jenny was white, and so they actually got married in in Ohio. And so. I don't know if it was in Cleveland, but it was in the county where Cleveland is. That's where they made their home. And they got married in 1889. Now, that was not the end thing to do. And my great-grandmother was disowned by her family because she married my great-grandfather. And so okay. it was her, it was would have been her great-grandfather, let's see, who was William Hood. So, no, it would have been her grand, yeah, her great-grandfather who was William Hood who fought in the American Revolution. So Jenny was the daughter of Andrew Coover Hood who um, fought in the Civil War on the Union side. And he fought in Pennsylvania. But guess what? It didn't matter. He was not pleased that his daughter married a man who was black, and so he disowned her. Wow. So that's the line. It's her line and her mother's line that goes back for me into the very early days of this country. Okay. And so with the information you had on William Hood, this is what uh, allowed you to be admitted into membership into DAR? Yes. So here's, here's the thing. I, you know, back then, I mean, this is 
1976 when I discover my patriot ancestor, William Hood. And so I was lucky, and I think many of us are, that we have like a genealogy mentor. So mine was Margaret Ward, who was a black archivist at the at our library here in Detroit. And she really, you know, helped me as I was doing research, encouraged me. Sometimes we just need that encouragement to keep going. So when I oh, found absolutely. William Hood, you know, um, when I found William Hood, I was actually moving past him. I, you know, I didn't take it as seriously as Margaret did. And she said, no, you need to stop here. You need to look at this and you need to consider applying to DAR. Now, at that time, I didn't know if there were any other black members. I wasn't going into it for that reason. I mean, my my thought about joining DAR was, well, if I'm going to do this as I, as my mentor is suggesting, then maybe the reason to join is because it's the logical conclusion to this line of research. And so I took Margaret's advice, and she was wonderful. Um, I took her advice. And I, apply, I sent letters to two local DAR chapters, and um, I never got a response. Mm-hmm. So then um, Margaret, uh, I, I think she was more upset about it than I, so she c- contacted someone she knew in D.C. who turned out to be my second genealogy mentor, and that was James Dent Walker, who, um, Jimmy Walker, who was um, uh, head of genealogical services at the National Archives at the time, and he and his wife Barbara went on to uh, found the African American Genealogical Society. But um, Jimmy became like my genealogy godfather. And he knew people at DAR. And long story short, the next year, the next summer, I get a letter from another local chapter in Royal Oak, Michigan, the Ezra Parker chapter of DAR, and they asked to sponsor me. Because back then, not only did you have to prove your lineage, but you had to be invited to membership and sponsored by two members of a local chapter. And that Mm -hmm. was the piece that I was having trouble with. So um, between Margaret Ward and Jimmy Walker, um, they really helped me bridge that hurdle. And I became a member of DAR officially in um, October of 1977. Wow. And it's just so wonderful to hear that uh, you had two excellent mentors uh, to guide you in this process and to open the door for you. Um, Now, there are some questions coming out of the chat room. One of the questions uh, is focusing on uh, your ancestor. Did, Did your ancestor talk about the disowning of the Irish woman Also, uh, have you found or been in communication with the descendants of your family, of her family, who was disowned? Okay, so we're talking about my great-grandmother, I think we're talking about here, right? Mm -hmm. Jenny. Yes. Um, Jenny, And so, yes, she was alive when I was a toddler. So she died when I was about three years old. And my mother was very close to her grandmother. So they used to call her Dom, which I think was a, a shortening of Grandmama or something like that, but it was short for Dama, and my mom had called her that, and so everybody called her Dom. And so Dom was um, from, you know, I, I mean, I didn't know her as an adult because obviously she was gone by the time I was old enough to ask any questions. But what I always heard about her is that she was very, very protective of her family. 
And so her children were all mulatto. They were mixed race, Mm -hmm. including my grandmother. And, yes, her family, she had sisters who lived in Cleveland and lived around her. She had other family who moved there. And but they would, as my mother used to tell me, they would tell her, well, you can come and visit, but don't bring your colored family. And so um, my mother said they would only go and visit their white relatives. And now this is not the South, right? This is just this is the Midwest. But they would only go and visit their white relatives at night. And so my mother grew up with this. You know, you're 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 black, but you know you don't get to see the other part of the family, and so that's why they didn't talk a lot about whatever the history might have been that they knew. They didn't share that because it was just a, it was a different experience. And as my mother was growing up, I mean, I'm branching off a little here, but I have an my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, was an immigrant. Now, how many of you have an immigrant grandfather? Most most of us as black people don't. So my grandfather was um, from Bermuda. He was a British citizen, never gave up his citizenship, um, and, and thought God and king and country were everything. Um, so they had their own little life that they led, but they didn't spend a lot of time around their white relatives. And once my great-grandmother was gone, I, that was just something they didn't do. But interestingly, in my lifetime, in my adulthood, we have you know, connected with our relatives who were on the other side of the color line. I have, I have family here in Michigan who are, are white and on that side of the family. And they, you know, we, we stay in touch from time to time. Um, we've connected, some of them have done DNA tests, and so we've connected through DNA testing. Um, so it's, you know, when you're, when you're part of a family that's mixed, I think you're always feeling your way, and it was especially that way in, you know, the days gone by. So right. Well, there's the another question, question. <laughs> right, coming out, out of the chat. They wonder uh, if anyone in your family passed for white because it was so difficult. Um, not that I know of. So my my grandmother, who you can see her picture is in the um, uh, the pictures that I shared. So right, there's a rotating be... uh, there's a rotating billboard. So your the pictures are rotating as you speak. Yes. So the picture of the woman in the white dress is my maternal grandmother. And her name was Hazel, and she was mulatto. Um, She actually, I'm very proud to say that she actually went to Howard University. She graduated from Howard in 1917 with a Bachelor of Arts. And so she was, to me, this amazing role model. Now, I didn't know her because she died of breast cancer uh, six years before I was born. But mm-hmm. she was always held up as a role model to me um, because she was, she was smart. She dealt with, you know, the ups and downs of being in a mixed family. She dealt with having breast cancer for 15 years during a time when you can imagine what the treatments were like. Um, She is, I'm lucky that in my family I've had some real heroes or heroines. And the other one I would say is if you look at the other picture, the other old picture in the, that's showing on the um, screen, that's my other grandmother, my paternal grandmother, Beatrice. Equally, one of my heroes. Now, Grandma lived to be 97 years old. She had an eighth grade education, and she was from 
way out in the country outside of Columbus, Georgia. So this is then that other side of my family that goes back through the slaves and slave owners. And Grandma didn't have a formal education, but she was the wisest woman I ever, ever knew. So, you know, I've got this, when I talk about this extreme ancestor, I've got the side that goes back through a mixed race. I've got the side that goes back through an immigrant. And then I've got the side that goes back through, um, you know, slaves and slave owners and through the South. So it's, uh, yeah. Did I answer the question? I I think you did. And we're going to take a quick break and then come back and talk a little bit more about your ancestors and slavery and uh, find out what you discovered about your ancestors. So we're going to just take a quick break. And this quick break is going to be a word from our sponsor, and the sponsor is Roots to Glory Tours. Well, each year, Africans in the diaspora, from the Americas to Europe, make the decision to trace their ancestral roots by DNA. For some, it's difficult and emotional, while for others, it serves as a final destination from the journey traveled hundreds of years ago by their ancestors. Finally, they are now able to put closure to the question of who am I and where did I come from? The need to identify with a place called home is extremely important. Roots to Glory Tours will help bridge that gap by guiding, introducing, and being a part of the experience of discovery and reconnection to Africa as they embrace their long-lost families. To find out how you can participate in a number of tours to Africa, go to www.rootstoglory.com. You can also find them on Facebook Instagram, and Twitter. That's Roots to Glory Tours. Well, I want to welcome everyone back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, TuneIn.com, and Stitcher.com. Now, you have been listening to Karen Batchelor share her extreme ancestry with us. And I think Patricia now has a question for you, Karen. Patricia, okay. you're on. Thank you. Thank you, Bernice. And Karen, um, you talked about your discovering ancestors that were slaves and slave owners. I'm yeah. just, I'm, I'm curious to know how many and uh, how many were slaves and slave owners and where were they located? Okay. Well, um, my dad's side of the family, so the bachelor is actually my maiden name. And so my bachelor line goes back to Harris County, Georgia. And both of my paternal grandparents, who are in the picture that you see uh, on the screen, the old picture with the two people and the little child, those are my um, grandparents, my paternal grandparents, um, uh, uh, Eddie Walton Bachelor and Beatrice Parker. So the Bachelors and the Parkers all came from Harris County, Georgia. And on the Bachelor line, um, it goes back. I've been able to get back to my third great-grandfather, who was Walton Bachelor, and found records uh, from the Freedmen's Bureau um, about him. Um, But the Bachelor line I have not had as much success with. Now, some of my family names on that side are the Bachelors. Lucky is a a last name. Crawford is a last name. Um, And then on my grandmother's side, the Parkers, it goes back 
through a known slave owner. So my grandmother's father, Thomas Jefferson Parker, was the son of Isaiah Parker and Charity Ann Graves. Isaiah was the white son of the slave owner, who was also named Isaiah, and Charity Ann was one of their slaves. And Isaiah and Charity Ann are this amazing couple who had 17 children together during and after slavery. So during the Civil War, Isaiah's father died, and he bought Charity Ann and five of their children from his father's estate. So I actually found the bill of sale that shows where he bought them, and it was for back then $4,500 and some change. Now that was, number one, it was Confederate money, right? So it's hard to put a you know, present-day value to that, but I actually have tried, and it's hard to put a present-day value on the price of a person. But, I mean, if you just go dollars to dollars, that was probably the equivalent of about $700,000 without considering that you're buying a person. Um, So he actually bought them, and then after slavery, I find them living together as man and wife in the 1870 census. So, you know, it's an interesting conundrum when you have that kind of of family dynamic. You know, I try not to let myself ask, were they in love? And, you know, all this kind of, well, why did they stay together? Mm -hmm. And, um, but they, um, they did stay together and, and he died and, um, you know, this family has multiplied like nobody's business. So I have a lot of Parker uh, cousins all over. Um, I wow. actually um, think that they showed a bravery that, you know, normally you wouldn't see back in those times. My um, goodness. Yeah. Well, well, there's a question coming out of the chat. They want to know, uh, where did you find the bill of sale and what year was it? The bill of sale was from 1861, and I'm proud to say now I did not find the bill of sale myself. My father did, because after I started doing genealogy and became a member of DAR, my father got inspired to start doing genealogy too. So he spent a lot of time on the Parker side of the family, and they went down to Georgia, and this bill of sale is online now. It's you know it's it's part of the um, probate records in Georgia. Um, mm-hmm. But my dad actually found the record, and I just remember how proud he was. I mean, you know, we inspire one another within a family, you know, to find more out about our ancestry, and so um, so dad was the one who found this, but it was. The estate um, was probated in 1861, so that was during the during the Civil War. And then, when did you find the Freedmen Bureau record? Um, just recently, in the last two years, did I find those? So that the Bachelor line has been more difficult for me to research. The Parker line. Um, you know, I it it's like when you're back as far as I am, and and you have all these lines that branch out. You're, you know, I kind of jump around, so I'm not going to tell you. I think that's the best thing to do, but I do. And so, for instance, last fall, I was able to prove that Isaiah, of you know, my great great grandfather, who was who bought Charity Ann, he fought for the Confederacy. Now, I'm oh. not going to tell you that I'm going to join Daughters of the, you know, Confederate Confederacy or whatever that association is. But 
Um, we had always heard that maybe he fought for the Union, even though he was in Georgia, but I definitely proved that he did not. Um, so the Freedmen Bureau records I found online on Ancestry. So what's really great now is a lot of information has been digitized, which wasn't what it was like when I first started doing genealogy. But I would caution everyone listening that really only about 10, maybe 15% of the records that are available to you for family history have been digitized. So if you just rely on what's online, you will be missing the mother load about your family history. So I actually get out and I go, you know, looking in different places, historical societies, and I'm ashamed to say, but I am about to make for the first time in 40 years, I am going to Salt Lake City this summer. And I'm going to spend a week there during doing research. But um, I, I think the, the, the lesson is you actually have to let your fingers do the walking. You have to get out and look for the data. Right. And just that is as you genealogy. mentioned, going to the land in Pennsylvania and kind of yeah. walking walking where your ancestors walked and looking at the tombstone, it does do something for you to oh, it say does. that you, you didn't just sit at your computer and do your genealogy. I also think that it's wonderful to hear that your father uh, became motivated after you uh, joined DAR to start looking for his side of the family. Uh, you know, there's a, a comment in here for you that says, no reason to be ashamed for being a first-time trip to Utah. <laughs> we, all, we all take it one day, so don't, don't be ashamed of the fact that this is your first time doing it. But I want well, to continue. It's been on my wish list forever, and I'm just doing it, but I'm doing it. <laughs> Yeah, because, I ahead. mean, Salt Lake, City is, Salt Lake City is not around the corner yeah. for a lot of people. So, exactly. you know, they have to go to the next best, go to the family history centers in their local yeah. communities that may be uh, as helpful to them as taking the trip to Salt Lake City. But yeah. because we're talking about your extreme ancestry, yeah. I know <laughs> that you have found a colonial witch or two. And so, yes, so tell us about your colonial witch or two. Well, when, who? (laughs) That was, that was, well, you know, I often find ancestors that just kind of call out to me. So for those of you who are listening, maybe as you've been doing research, you you know, you come on to someone and just for some reason you want to know more about that person. It's like they're reaching out from the past, grab me by the collar and say, you know, find out more about my story. So my um, witch ancestor was a man named John Carrington. And John Carrington was one of the early settlers of Weathersfield, Connecticut. So I have very, on my mother's mother's line, I have very, very deep New England, colonial New England roots that go back to 1630. Um, so, um, and, and that's in Massachusetts, um, Connecticut, Maine, and New Hampshire. Now, John Carrington immigrated from England, and he, um, wherever he came in, probably through Massachusetts, he ended up settling very early in, um, in Connecticut. Now, this, what, what I found out about Puritan times, it was like Nazi Germany. It was a very harsh, unforgiving very tough time to live, and that doesn't diminish what slavery was, but this was really bad, too. And so um, the, the Puritans believed that if anything bad happened, it was because of the devil. And if something bad happened, 
that meant that the devil was at work and he only worked through witches. And so if something bad happened by extrapolation, that meant that there were witches around. And this is how the Puritans actually thought. So let's say that there was a flu epidemic, which actually during the time that my ancestor John Carrington lived, we had the first ever flu epidemic in the country. And so those kinds of things, or bad storms like a hurricane, they attributed that to the devil. Now, I don't know what my... um, what exactly John Carrington was accused of, but I have found a microfilm of the actual indictment of him, and he and his wife were indicted. Now, I have not proved her as my ancestor. I believe she is, so I'm not going to say that that definitely she is, but her name was Joanne. So they were the first and only couple, married couple, to ever be accused and convicted of witchcraft in this country. And they were maybe the third or fourth or fifth people to be charged with witchcraft. So this was 40 years before Salem. They were charged in 1651, and the indictment said that they were accused of familiarity with Satan. Now, I don't know the record. The record doesn't exist anymore to say who accused them or what they exactly they were accused of. I mean, you know, it could have been someone's pig died or the pudding fell or it could have been anything. I mean, people were accused of, you know, what we would consider very minor things. They were sentenced to death for those things. And so John and Joanne Carrington were accused in, oh, let's see, I think it was January and or February, and by March they were convicted. And there is an actual record of their trial and who the jury was. And they were convicted. Now, there's not an actual record that says they were executed, but there is a journal from a man who was, um, uh, he was a town official, and he wrote on the inside of his journal that the Carringtons were executed. And so I have to believe that they probably were. Uh, And in those days, they would have been hung. Uh, No witches were ever burned in, um, uh, or no people were ever burned for witchcraft here in this country that was done in England. But, you know, they weren't any more witches than you or I, but people believed that they were, and that's what led to their deaths. And so as a result of being descended from John Carrington, I became a member uh, a few years back uh, in the Associated Daughters of Early American Witches. So one of the things that I've been doing recently, and this is just part of my legacy um, plan, is that I'm joining as many lineage societies as I can. So for those of you um, who don't know what a lineage society, it's like where you, it's a society that that focuses on a particular period of time or a particular uh, hereditary uh, uh, factor. So daughters of the American Revolution, sons of the American Revolution, those are lineage societies. So as of today, I am a member of five lineage societies, and I'm about to, this month, I'll be officially approved for a sixth one. My goal is 10 by the end of this year because this is a path that is the road less traveled for African Americans. And I really think that when you're eligible for a lineage society, you should join it because that preserves your family history in yet another place. So, And tell me, because... 
because you are joining so many of these societies and you feel this is a way of of really documenting and, and preserving your lineage, uh, what, what's the value, though, of joining all of these lineage societies? Well, okay, so at this point, from what I know now, I, I mean, and I would say these, this is kind of low-hanging fruit, and I look at my genealogy sometimes as what are some of the easier things to do and what are some of the harder things that I need to do. Um, and, you know, mm-hmm. we all have those, those lists that we keep um, about, you know, what, what we're working on. And so I'm eligible for, uh, for uh, the easier ones. I am eligible for 25 lineage societies, of which I have applied to and joined now six. Um, for me, it gets down to something really basic, and I, I don't know. I have two grandchildren. I have a son who's grown now. I have two grandchildren, and they're mixed race. And I want them to know about their heritage. I don't want any part of our story to get left behind. Because for all of us, someone else has told the story of who we come from until we started taking charge of telling the story ourselves. And so for Mm -hmm. me, this is part of my legacy to my grandchildren, is that they're always going to know, our family is always going to know where we come from. And it's the good, the bad, the ugly I don't leave any ancestors sitting on the sidelines because of, you know, what they did or, you know, who they were or they were bad actors. I take them all because they're mine, and they've been denied to me for all these years, and um, I so I claim them all. <laughs> That's a legacy <laughs> thing. <laughs> well, I... I <laughs> You have an amen, Karen, amen, coming from Shannon. <laughs> you claiming them all. Well, one of the things also, Karen, is that you're proving beyond a shadow of a doubt that you can document that these Correct. are your ancestors because you can't join a lineage society without having the proof. And that's another, that's a very good point because every time I make an application to a lineage society, I am not only filling out a paper application, if you will, but I, for each generation, I am having proofs to document every fact that I have for each generation and I have proof for every connection between the generations. So, for instance, last fall, I became a member, I'm very proud of this, of the women descendants of the Ancient and Honorable Artillery Company. Now, you probably have never heard of this, but the Ancient and Honorable Artillery Company still meets on Boston Commons and they're, they're the oldest military organization in the entire country. They're the oldest lineage organization in the entire country. And so they are people who became part of a militia uh, back in Boston. It started, the, the company started in 1637, and my ancestor, Griffin Craft, became um, a member of the artillery company in 1638. And so that was 13 generations that I had to document, provide all the proofs, and have it vetted by people who are used to looking at all of this early colonial material. And I was approved for membership. So you're right. This is like having someone else look at your research and and say, good job, you did a good job. And I think that's important too. Why? Well, because we're, we're I mean, into your extreme ancestry, I, mm-hmm. I notice also that you specialize in colonial New England 
and Revolutionary mm-hmm. War era. So how did you specialize? I mean, what does this mean? Well, what this means is, and, you know, I can't tell you that this is where I was headed when I started doing my family research back, you know, in 1976. But I am very intrigued by early colonial America, in part, and I'll just say this, because when I was growing up as a black girl in Detroit, there were times when, you know, especially around Fourth of July and everybody's getting ready to celebrate. And I just felt, you know, I grew, I'm, I'm 60, I'll be 66 years old next, next month. And I grew up during the 50s and 60s. And, you know, there were times when I honestly can say I felt just a click short of being really American, okay? But mm-hmm. doing my research in colonial, so my family line has led me back through colonial America. And I've not only learned about my ancestors, but I've learned a lot about the times that they lived in, particularly the 1600s and the early 1700s. I, I mean, I have to confess, I actually have a colonial outfit that I wear from time to time. <laughs> And I dress, I mean, I wear stays and the petticoats and everything. But there's just something about, I can't tell you why, there's something about that time that really speaks to me. So I have immersed myself in colonial New England. And I've actually worked as a historical presenter at a colonial farm here uh, at a, a, a American History Museum. Um and I, I, I think it goes back, though, to that time when I didn't feel as American as I wanted to. And now, because of the research I've done, not only on my family line, but learning about those times of our country and, and what it was like for people, I actually feel more American than apple pie. And... Uh, <laughs> That that means a lot. <laughs> As a well, woman, I'm, I'm certain it does. Now, I'm going to take you to one more area, and that's okay. DNA. DNA. Okay, sure. Okay, yeah. so tell us about your DNA experience and your extreme ancestry. Well, I did, um, the first time I did, I've done, I've had my DNA done, tested twice, and the first time I did it was when Ancestry first started doing testing. And I sent my um, sample in and uh, waited and waited. And right around that time, my mother died. And I just, you know, I mean, it was just a really tough time. I wasn't even thinking, you know, sometimes, I, you know, you're like waiting anxiously. Well, I wasn't. And so when it finally came back, I was like, oh, God, what is this? Let me look at it. And so here's what my ancestry is. And this is fairly consistent with um, I did later 23andMe. So I am 54% West African. And, of course, for all of us who are African-American, of course we're from West Africa because that was where the slave trade was. Um, Of that... I can't remember which of the tests shows that I'm about 23% Nigerian of which I'm very proud. And then there's some other, the 54% breaks down into some other um, areas of Africa. And then I am depending on the test and I've gotten two different uh, reads. One test says that I have 2% Native American, 2.3% Native American, and and the other test doesn't show that, but the rest is Northern European, so 40-whatever-6% is Northern European. And so how that, that's been a strange thing that has played out for me because um, when I first got my DNA results from Ancestry, they said, well, you're 8% Viking. Now, I'm going to tell you, that was the last thing I thought I would hear. So 
Um, what I have learned, though, since then is that I do have some Scandinavian, and I don't know if that's because I have a, a, a lot of British, a lot of British. Uh, so my 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 Northern European is British, Scottish, and the Vikings. You know, there was Scandinavian mixing in there. So I'm not sure what that plays out, but um, uh, my ancient haplogroup, so 23andMe gives you your ancient ancestry. And if you haven't done that, that's a, so DNA, I think it's like the first 500 years or so is what you get through ancestry. And then if you get your ancient haplogroup, maybe that's the next 500 years. So my, I don't have my father's. Um, because he died before I was able to, you know, do DNA testing. And um, I don't have a, a male relative that I can test. But on my mitochondrial or maternal DNA, the haplogroup or ancient DNA is H39. Now, there's not a lot out there about that, but H is solid European. That's the European line. 39 is what they call a subclave or a subgroup. It's a very rare one. And here's what I can tell you, that most of the people who are alive today who have that, that ancient haplogroup live in Finland or Sweden. So maybe that early result from Ancestry.com where it said 8% Viking isn't so far off, but uh, that's my DNA experience. I have been able to connect with cousins, especially on my grandfather's line, my maternal grandfather who was from Bermuda, who I know not much about. So I know I knew him and I knew where he was from. But I have only been able to find out his mother's name. So here we are, you know, we have successes and we have failures as genealogists. So on my grandfather's line, I have failed to find as much information as I want to. And I actually now have to go there because none of the records for Bermuda have been digitized yet. So I, I, that's, that's a research trip for next summer. But um, the DNA has helped me connect with other people who share my um, uh, Bermuda DNA. And that's been really exciting and, and, you know, continues to inspire me to learn more about that line. Wow. So when is the book coming out, Karen? <laughs> wow, it's funny you should ask me that because someone just emailed that to me to uh, – today asking me when are you writing your book and and I'll tell you I had an experience um, back in the 1980s I met Alex Haley and he was I'm certainly my role model his book came out just months after I had started researching I read it cover to cover I remember saving my grocery money to buy the hardcover book and um, I met him at a dinner and he and I ended up spending three hours after the dinner together just talking, just the two of us. And, I mean, it was amazing. And he said, Karen, you have to write these things down. You have to write this, this juxtaposition of slave and, 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 and you know, patriot ancestors. He said, you got to write this down. So I would say that that's, my next big challenge because I am more a researcher. I love the hunt and I could research till the cows come home. So sitting <laughs> down and writing out some of the stories is that challenge. But now as I've gotten older, I'm really motivated by wanting to leave that as a legacy. So that's next on the list. And, and you know, Anita Henderson and Michael Henderson, uh, they are constantly uh, encouraging me to take that step. So that's, that's on my to-do list for this year, too, to start that. Wonderful, wonderful. So do you have any closing remarks 
for the listeners, and also how can we find out more about your extreme ancestry? Do you have a blog? I do have a blog. Um, it's extremeancestry.com. And um, my website for Story Mountain, which is my genealogy um, business, that is actually under development as we speak. So I've given all my content to the um, web designer. So look for that to go live in the next couple weeks. So that'll be storymountain.com because I really believe that it's not just about finding the names, dates, and places that are the genealogy data of your ancestors. It's about trying to dig in deep and find the stories. And the stories are where the people live on. You know, they, it's it's more than just the data. It really is the stories. And so... Um, uh, you know, anyone can contact me at, um, I'm also on Facebook, uh, Extreme Ancestry on Facebook. So you can reach me there as well. And I always love to, to connect with people. And if I can inspire someone to, you know, get past the brick wall or to um, take up another line, um, I like to do that because remember, for someone, for instance, my age, to go back to the American Revolution, family tree branches out 126 times. So we tend to, and I'm guilty of this, tend to, you know, focus on just one or two lines at a time. And I did that yes. for years, Bernice. I, I mean, I just did that, and I, you know, was stuck, and I'd stay on them. I was just, you know, determined. And it wasn't until I got over myself on that and started to look at how the tree branched out that all of a sudden I just had an explosion of success in researching. So I would encourage people to take the road less traveled. Uh, you know, or the, the branch less traveled on your family tree and see what you can find about someone you haven't researched yet. And also, I think the, the, the one real important parting thing that I would like to leave people with is that don't judge your ancestors. They, their lives are over, their past. You can't change the past, who they were, what they did, how they lived. And I think that as African Americans, sometimes we leave some of our history on the table because we don't want to go into those painful areas where people did things that we wouldn't have agreed with. And so I would just encourage you to, you know, to to not judge them and and accept that they're your ancestors and see what you can find out about them that will make you learn more about who you are. Well, I think that's a, a wonderful advice. Don't judge your ancestors. But we still have one more question coming out of the chat room for you. <laughs> sure. And this question goes back to your DNA, and they want to know if you uploaded your DNA data to JetMatch. I did. And I also sent it to Family Tree DNA. Now, I will tell you, I am not an expert on the DNA. And I do really, that's an area that I really need to learn more about how to interpret the data. Um, but yes, I did upload to JetMatch. Okay, well, we don't have any more questions. Everyone is just really happy to have listened to you and to hear your story. Uh, we have a comment. We're DAR deep out here for Karen. These are some of your DAR members. Oh, and that's so, Karen, <laughs> so, Karen, I want to thank you so so very much for sharing your extreme ancestry with us tonight. And everyone else, please remember, your ancestors left footprints. And just as Karen has said, you know, we need to dig deep. 
you know, look at those lines that we haven't looked at. And uh, therefore, you know, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. Now, you can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and beyond and the AfroGenius.com Facebook pages. And also remember to listen to the African Roots Podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Fridays and also watch for the Black Progen Live with host Nika Soul Smith. Thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This show is sponsored by Roots to Glory, and the website is www.rootsforglory.com. Also, check out my services at BB's Genealogy Research and Educational Services, LLC, and my website is www.geniebroots.com. And I look forward to having all of you join me next week. This is your host, Bernice Alexandra Bennett, with co-host Patricia Glover-Howard. Good night, everyone. Good night, Karen. Good night, Patricia and Bernice. Thank you. Good night. Thank you. Good night, Karen. Thank you.